Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, Lady Chatterley's Brexit, uh, one of the most significant moments in modern British life, the decision to leave the EU has become almost unmentionable in our political discourse. We'll be hearing from Chris Gray, the author of Brexit Unfolded. He writes the Brexit and Beyond blog and is also Emeritus Professor of Business and Management Studies at Royal Holloway at the University of London. Before that, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper, which features content that you can't read anywhere else. We don't have a millionaire backer. There's no big corporation behind us telling us what to say. We rely on ordinary readers and listeners like you to support our fearless, independent journalism. You get details on subscriptions over at bylinetimes.com. Subs cost from as little as £3 a month. So do please head over to bylinetimes.com. Let's hear now from Chris Gray. When I spoke to him a little earlier, I wanted to know why Lady Chatterley's lover, D.H. Lawrence's 19th century novel, is so significant in this context. Well, there was a very famous uh, court case in 1960 when the publishers of the English edition of D.H. Lawrence's Lady Chatterley's Lover were put on trial under the obscenity laws that existed at at the time. And during that trial, the, the prosecuting barrister made this very sort of famous remark, and he said to the jury, he said, would you approve of your young sons, young daughters, because girls can read as well as boys, reading this book? Is it a book you would have lying around in your own house? Is it a book that you would even wish your wife or your servants to read? I mean, that seems incredibly dated to us now. Actually, it seemed, even in 1960, it seemed incredibly dated. I mean, it was almost had this sort of Victorian idea of a sort of a patriarch controlling what their family could read and and what their servants could read and so on. And so it it became in its own right a bit of a joke and very much kind of emblematic of an old kind of elite and an old hierarchy. And it just came into my mind that somehow this captured as a sort of metaphor, there have been so many different ways Brexit has been described. People talk about Schrodinger's Brexit and Kamikaze Brexit and Canada Brexit and Norway Brexit and Ukraine Brexit and blah, blah, blah. But it just occurred to me that, that somehow the way that now Brexit has become this almost taboo subject in the same kind of way as in that trial, it was suggested that sex was a taboo thing, something not to be spoken about in front of ordinary people, the plebs or or, or even even just women, you know, that was the idea behind it. And Lady Chatterley's Lover was famous because it had a four-letter Anglo-Saxon word. Brexit is a six-letter word and the four-letter word, ironically, is probably more likely to be heard on mainstream media outlets than the six-letter words. I mean, we may be exaggerating this slightly. There are both of the rudest four-letter words that maybe chapters lover, if I'm not mistaken. The one that we kind of say and the one that we don't say. And as I say, we may be exaggerating the extent to which Brexit isn't discussed, but only a bit, so that when, for example, Rishi Sunak talks about the global economy being behind Britain's problems at the moment. There's a, a determination to sweep it under the carpet, to not address it for the interrupter of the economy that it unquestionably has been. Yes, of course, we are exaggerating a little bit. It's not that it's, it's never mentioned, but I mean, it's certainly not just me making this observation. I mean, there's 
a lot of people in both the domestic press and abroad, I mean, just the other day in the Irish Times, I think it was, there was a big article about the sort of conspiracy of silence in British politics about Brexit. In a way, this goes back quite a long way. I mean, you, know, you may recall that at one stage, when Boris Johnson was Prime Minister, he actually put out this edict, which I may say was ignored, but he put out this edict to cabinet ministers that they shouldn't use the word Brexit. And the idea was, well, because it's been done. And so this is all the past and we shouldn't sort of mention it. And of course, equally, for different reasons, the Labour Party, and I think we're really talking about Conservative and Labour parties here, right? Because, I mean, you know, the SNP talk about Brexit, the Lib Dems certainly talk about Brexit and other parties, but the two big Westminster parties really fight shy of it. And for Starmer, the issue is, well, he doesn't want to alienate Labour voters or potential Labour voters who voted leave and doesn't want to kind of go near it for that reason. This has been true for months, maybe even since the end of the transition period. But what has changed now, what I think has made it all the more glaring, is why is Sunak Prime Minister? The answer to that is because of the way that Truss's mini-budget exploded, and the idea is he is an economic realist, a safe pair of hands, a pragmatist. Fine. But as soon as you start to say, this is my pitch, economic realism, it seems to me that it becomes more and more glaring to refuse to mention and at least to really sort of downplay and deny as both he has done and Jeremy Hunt at the weekend, he was asked about the economic consequences, negative economic consequences of Brexit. He said, I don't accept the premise of that, you know, as if this was still the referendum campaign. And it was like saying, oh, well, this is just a prediction that things will go wrong. No, you know, we can see hard evidence. You know, of course, it's always complicated. Evidence is mixed up with other things. But we can see the difference between Britain and other countries. It's no good saying, oh, well, there's Ukraine, war, of course, that's true. Oh, yes, there's been the pandemic, of course, that's true. But that has affected every other country as well. What is the one thing, the one big thing that's happened in Britain that hasn't happened in the other countries? And the answer is Brexit, right. Johnson, you know, kind of you know, lived in this kind of la-la world of sort of boosterism and vague promises and all this kind of thing. And Truss was kind of effectively sort of discredited as just being a sort of completely kind of dogmatic ideologue. He was like the toddler, the baby, I want my cake and eat it. And she was like this kind of stubborn adolescent, you know, kind of saying, well, we're going to do it my way. He's meant to be the adult, right? And the adult, as I say, who's, who's meant to be a sort of economic realist. And so it becomes more and more jarring as time goes by for Sunak to maintain that. And equally, I think more and more difficult for Starmer to maintain that as well. People will have seen figures released by the OECD, the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, showing the economic progress of major developed nations. The United States economy has grown by more than 4%. The economies of countries like Germany, Japan and France have also grown over the last year, albeit more slowly. And of those major nations, the UK is the only one whose economy has declined 0.2%, and the Bank of England is now predicting a recession. So it is still possible, I would suggest, to hold a view that Brexit is good for Britain in the long term. That could still be an intellectually coherent view. It seems to me to be patently dishonest to today pretend that it hasn't had a negative economic impact on our country. Yes, I guess you could can still say, you know, in the long run, it might be an increasingly you hear progress of people sort of, you know, talking about that and saying, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, we need to sort of judge it. I mean, actually, I don't think that is in, 
intellectually respectable for a couple of reasons. I mean, well, one is a political reason, which is nothing like that was ever said at the time of the referendum. Right? There was never any suggestion that you're going to be waiting decades for the benefits. And secondly, because actually, what would that intellectual case be based on? Well, I guess it would be the same old things, which is the idea that you can compensate for loss of trade with the EU by trade with other countries. It's not just that we can already see, as George Eustace said about the Australian and New Zealand trade deals, that this is not the case. But even if you were to imagine much more successful trade deals, the so-called prize of a trade deal with the US, but even that, or the most optimistic estimates, might add something like 0.2% to GDP over 15 years, whereas we can already see the 15-year projection is, is minus 4% for leaving the EU. So I don't think that it stacks up even as a as an intellectual case. And of course, what it really does is it just basically makes the Brexiters completely unaccountable. Because remember what they said at the time of the referendum, and all the predictions that said, oh, well, that's all project fear. You can't know what's going to happen in the future. Economic forecasts, they're always wrong, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so they say we can't look into the future. Now, as we begin to get the evidence, what they're saying is, ah, yes, but you can't really say that's because of Brexit. You know, it could be to do with other things. It could be to do with Ukraine. It could be to do with the pandemic. So on the one hand, they're saying you're not allowed to, to judge us by looking forward. And on the other hand, they say, oh, but you're not allowed to judge us by looking back. So what are they actually saying? They're saying we're not going to be judged at all. And, you know, 40, 50 years, the Reese Moggs, the Goves, the Johnsons, the Nigel Farages, and if they're still alive, it's going to be completely irrelevant. So it's a transparent plot. There are other arguments than economic ones for Brexit. The idea of sovereignty, of taking back control. There's the notion that we don't have to allow people from 28 other countries in automatically to live and work here should they choose. And for some Brexiters, those virtues, in inverted commas, of Brexit will remain whatever the economic cost. I mean, even in the way that you so just put it, I mean, the right of people to come from the EU, you know, it wasn't automatic. You know, there were actually certain conditions which actually the UK tended not to enforce, but that was the UK's choice. And of course, the flip side of it is that even in those terms, there's still a price to be paid for sovereignty, which is the fact that the British people have lost their rights to move around in Europe. But I think we have to be a bit kind of careful here because a certain kind of myth has grown up since the referendum, which is sort of like, oh, well, it was never about economics as if the whole thing had been some kind of university political philosophy seminar about the nature of, of, of sovereignty. But if you look back at all those campaign materials, it wasn't sort of just, oh, sovereignty in the abstract, like, you know, this is just a sort of a good thing in itself. All the time, it was linked with various kinds of economic arguments. So you look back at those things, they said, well, if we do that, then you'll have, and it was often linked with freedom of movement and immigration, so you'll have better housing, you'll have better public services, You'll have this and that. And of course, the £350 million, that was an economic thing. Actually, that was a very, very bread and butter economy, jobs, public services campaign. So it wasn't sovereignty as just a thing. It was sovereignty in order to achieve certain kinds of things. So you can't now then turn around and then say, oh, well, actually, we never meant that it would have any benefits. It just would be like a nice thing, you know, just to have an illustrate. But to say something else as well, I mean, in terms of, Lady Chatterley's Brexit, which is you know, what we started with, is that the thing that is most extraordinary about that is that supposing it's right, you know, and it's just wonderful to have sovereignty and never mind the consequences, never mind the costs, then why is it a taboo subject? Why are we not shouting and yelling and waving flags? Hurrah, you know, this was meant to be for the Brexiters 
a national project of sort of liberation. So what? Now you're too ashamed to talk about it. And of course, what that really reflects, and what I think is the big weirdness about all of this, is that the reason why the flags are not being waved in, in, in that way is not actually because of the economic consequences necessarily. It's to do with the fact that you can very clearly see in consistently in opinion polls that the British people now think that Brexit was a mistake. And they have done with a little bit of variation, but not very much, certainly ever since the end of the transition period. The latest figures that I've, that I've seen in, in the polls, that excluding don't knows, is that 61% of people think that leaving the EU was the wrong thing to do, and 39% think it was the right thing to do. And by the way, that gap is steadily rising and has been for several months, probably at least a year. What kind of national liberation is it when getting towards two-thirds of the population think it's a mistake? That's not a liberation. You mentioned George Eustace, the former Environment Secretary's comments yeah. in the House of Commons recently. He's still an MP, of course. Although his observations on the Australia trade deal were negative, and he said the first step to recognise is that the Australia trade deal is not actually a very good deal for the UK, so not minting his words on that, he was blaming a senior civil servant called Crawford Faulkner, who is the Interim Permanent Secretary for the Department for International Trade. So I just wonder if that's a new strand of this narrative, that Brexit would be OK, would be good, and Eustace was a Brexiter, that Brexit would be OK if only it wasn't for these dastardly civil servants frustrating us with their incompetence. Yeah, but I mean, this is really, really interesting because... First of all, to say, right from the beginning, that's been the critique, a critique and an excuse. Oh, well, the civil service are obstructive remainers and so on. But the actual specific civil servant who he was criticising is actually a rather unusual civil servant, in as much as came originally uh, into the civil service as an advisor to Liam Fox in 2017. He is not a career civil servant. He is not a Remainer. He was brought in from the Legatum Institute, which is a pro-Brexit right-wing free market think tank. He was brought in precisely as somebody who would be sympathetic to and would advance the Brexiters agenda. And so the fact that he is now being criticised is completely out of kilter with that longer-running kind of narrative of critique. What the criticism kind of shows and, and, what, and what George Eustace kind of said was something which everyone who was observing it kind of knew all along, which was that what did it mean to be pro-Brexit in relation to trade? It meant getting a deal as quickly as possible in order to demonstrate symbolically Brexit has given us freedom. Brexit could give us these successes. Again, even if it had been a good deal, it still wouldn't be worth very much to the UK economy just because there's just not enough trade between the UK and Australia for it to be worth it. But actually, it wasn't, a, you know, it wasn't even a very good deal at all. But they wanted to do it as quickly as possible and with as much fanfare as possible. And really, if you think about it, that is an incredibly irresponsible thing to do with trade policy because now was an independent trade policy, independent of the EU, but they put all the emphasis on the independent and none of the emphasis on trade. All that matters was that we could do a deal. And so doing a deal, whatever it was, became the criteria. So Eustace criticises the civil servant that you're talking about for saying, well, one of the things he criticises him for is saying, well, you know, he always kind of basically sort of internalised and took the Australian point of view. But in doing that, he was doing precisely what the Brexiters wanted 
because what they wanted was a deal at all costs as quickly as possible. Given the absence of any clear economic advantage to the UK of achieving Brexit, what do you think the purpose of Brexit was? My response to that is always that we can never talk about a purpose of Brexit in the singular. The whole issue with Brexit was that it had multiple purposes, not just from individual voters, of course, but from the coalition of different kinds of people who campaigned for it. And A deliberate decision was made by the Vote Leave campaign not to specify what form Brexit would take. And so what that means is that any particular version of Brexit immediately runs into opposition, not from Remainers, or not simply from Remainers, but from other kinds of leavers. And we can see that playing out all the time right now. We can see it playing out over post-Brexit immigration policy, where you've got a clear division between the version of Brexit that people like Suella Bravham and the Home Secretary have compared with certainly the version that Liz Truss had and possibly what Sunak had, although we don't really know in terms of that. So one version is to say, and what many, certainly, you know, many Leave voters, I think, would have expected is, well, taking control of immigration meant reducing levels of immigration. But other Brexiters say, and still say, oh, well, it's not about reducing immigration. Taking control just means that we choose the level, which might be higher than the level of what actually is. I mean, I think I'm right to say that the day after the referendum, that uh, Daniel Hannan, Lord Hannan, high-profile Brexit, said exactly that. And so when we talk about, well, what was the purpose of Brexit? The answer is, is that it had multiple and contradictory purposes. And that's the reason why, even in its own terms, it was never going to be a success. When you mentioned my book, Brexit Unfolded, but the subtitle of that book is How No One Got What They Wanted and Why They Were Never Going To. One reason is all the contradictions. The other is that so many of these parts of it were based on fantasy anyway, but that's not another story. But, but can I just come back, if you don't mind, to this issue about public opinion about Brexit? Because this thing about Lady Chatterley's Brexit, The thing about it, which I think is so peculiar, and I can't, you may be able to think of a parallel, but I can't think of a parallel in modern British politics, is a situation where you have such a disjuncture between what the political kind of, certainly, I say, the main political parties, what they are talking about and saying, and this sort of emerging, more or less settled view of the public, that Brexit has been a mistake, and certainly that it has had negative economic consequences. Even a lot of Leave voters accept that but it's still not sayable for the politicians. And that is a really weird situation. The unsayable is remarkably unsayable by the main opposition in Westminster. And I can't think of another parallel in my lifetime of a policy which has been initiated by a government which has been proved to be unpopular with the public, as the polling that you've quoted suggests, but which the opposition has failed to seek, to even seek, to make political capital from. It was always going to be difficult for Labour because there is a segment of its traditional vote that was pro-Brexit, and so it was always going to be difficult in that way. And although I'm critical of Labour about that, I also think that there are some individual MPs and shadow ministers, it's it's a bit under the radar, but who do say things in select committees and so on and so forth. But, But still, I take your point. I mean, I think there's two things. I mean, one is just about electoral calculation, the thing about voters, but also the fact that you could just say, look, 
were 50% or whatever in the opinion polls anyway, without mentioning Brexit. So, you know, let's just get on with it. The problem is, what will they do when they, if they get into power? Because they need to have prepared a path of things that they would do that would deal with some of this stuff. But the other thing, you know, Adrian, is I think that the whole British political class got badly scared by Brexit and by the toxicity of what happened afterwards, you know? And so there's a fear about going back to a situation in which, again, we're in this kind of terrible language of kind of enemies of the people and sabotage and treachery and all of those kinds of things. But in the end, you cannot have a polity which is too scared to talk about what's happening in the country. And I don't think it's sustainable for it to go on like this for much longer. Chris, really appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. That's Chris Gray. You can read the article that we're referencing there at bylinetimes.com. And if you want to support this podcast, please take out a subscription to the Byline Times. You'll also get details on subscriptions at bylinetimes.com. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been the Byline Times podcast. Thank you very much indeed for listening. We'll see you again soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye.